Please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning with verse 26. We are going through the book of 1 Corinthians, written to the church of Corinth, shortly after our Lord's ascendance, ascension into heaven. And you might remember from our studying in the past that the church in Corinth is a very proud church. It was in a city that was uh, the depository of much of the wealth and importance of ancient Greece, but it was a Roman city at a matrix of uh, routes of commerce. It was known, as a matter of fact, it was, uh, it was a byword of sexual immorality at this time in the Roman Empire and before. It had been uh, raised about a century earlier and then made again, so it was sort of known as Second Corinthians, <laughs> um, Corinthians 2, second verse. Um, and in it was a church, and the church was very, very proud and really did not like having Paul have a relationship with them because they, they saw Paul as undignified, ineffective, uh, too simple, not flowery, not rhetorical enough, just really a pimple on their reputation. But Paul loved them, and Paul would not twist the message of God's holiness and truth to uh, appeal to their vanity. And so Paul is setting about from the very beginning, dealing with the division in the church over him, by pointing them in the direction of their true status, which was nothing. He's sort of shoving their nose in their humiliation, who they really are. And we pick up in the middle of this with verse 26. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are. So that no man may boast before God. But by his doing you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What is the purpose of the theme, this theme of foolishness and wisdom as the world sees it and as God has decreed? And why is Paul writing about it? Well, again, He's at the center of division, and the church thinks that he's not dignified and not powerful enough and not tall enough and not dynamic enough and not charismatic enough and not well-educated enough and doesn't use as many rhetorical devices as he could to minister to them uh, this church, which, as they saw it, was very sophisticated. In other words, he didn't quite have the stature to deal with them as a congregation. After all, they're in Bloomington, and there are a number of people connected with Indiana University, a major research university. 
As a matter of fact, some pursuing the terminal degree. <laughs> now, the funny thing is, if you listen to the text, what you realize is that the people that he's dealing with aren't actually worthy of PhDs and professors. Because what he says about them, and for him to say it means it's absolutely true, otherwise he couldn't get away with saying it. What he actually says about them is what? Did you notice? He says, not many, what? Not many of you are, as the world sees it, wise. Not many of you are mighty and not many are noble. In fact, he goes on and he says, rather, those of you chosen are weak, you're base, you're despised, as a matter of fact, you are not. Now, that's not exactly what you want your mother to say to you as you're growing up. You know something? You are not. It's kind of weird. Um, you, I have only two original jokes in my life, and I get to tell you one at this point. So Cornelia Van Cott was getting her doctorate in mathematics, and she went out to San Francisco. And she was going to a conference and presenting a paper. And I asked somebody, so what's her paper on? And they said, not theory. I didn't even know there was such a thing in mathematics. So when she came back, I said, well, I hear you were out in San Francisco studying the things that are not. Thank you, Don. <laughs> Don thinks I'm funny. Cornelia didn't really laugh. And you know why? Because there's always an edge in my relationship with Cornelia reminding her that her getting the terminal degree and her academic achievements are actually an obstacle to godliness. Now, does that mean I disapproved of Cornelia getting her doctorate? No, it does not mean that. But... Have you ever had a good mother? A good mother. At your supreme achievement in life, you come home and tell your good mother, you're full of yourself, and what does your good mother tell you? <laughs> your good mother tells you that you ain't nothing. Why? Because she loves your soul. She loves your soul. And she knows that it's not a compliment to say to somebody that his mother never worried about his self-esteem. That's the funniest put-down I've ever heard in my life. It came from Rita Cuffey, and she was referring to a man, and Rita was not a malicious woman. She was very generous. But one day we were talking about a certain individual we both knew, and she looked at me, and she was about 83 at the time, and she said his mother certainly never had to worry about his self-esteem. <laughs> the Apostle Paul is not worried about the Corinthians' self-esteem. And it's a very unusual thing that those of us who have the least to be proud of are most desperate to claim our status. And that was the situation with the Corinthians. They didn't have status. And so they needed a pastor who was really something. They wanted a super apostle. They wanted a man who was dignified. They wanted a man who was well-educated. They wanted a man who knew how to use poetry and shaggy dog stories and large vocabulary and 
absolutely necessary, since it was a Presbyterian church. Back then, at that time, there were no other churches. Um, (laughs) That's a joke. All right. (laughs) Stephen, you shouldn't answer the preacher back. Oh, my. We can't have this here. (laughs) Actually, it may have been Baptist. Here they were, and they were desperate, and they had the Apostle Paul. And he didn't just hit, lack the degree, but he, but, but he also lacked the British accent. I mean, you know, it was a cosmopolitan place. And a cosmopolitan place ought to have a preacher who exudes being cosmopolitan himself. And what better thing in America than a British accent? Matter of fact, I think I could get a $20,000 raise if I all of a sudden was able to manufacture a British accent. The Corinthians wanted a man, a shepherd, that they could record and put on the radio and do podcasts of a man who was invited to the best concerts or conferences. That's Nashville. A man who would be invited to be a part of Together for the Gospel, who knew R.C. Sproul personally, and John Piper, that would be good, or John MacArthur, and Ted Tripp. And what they had was the Apostle Paul. And we know how dignified the Apostle Paul was because he's the one that wrote in the book of Galatians, why don't they just cut it all off? There's nothing respectable about the Apostle Paul. And people, there is nothing respectable about any preacher or pastor who loves your soul. He doesn't have time for hairspray. There's an old saying about churches who builds to God and not to fame will never mark a building with his name. You ever heard that? You know exactly what it means, right? If you're building something to God and not to your own glory, you're not going to mark that thing with your name. The Apostle Paul never marked any of his churches with his name. It was an accident of the Holy Spirit that he was the one that ministered to them. And none of them knew that someday they would be famous or infamous. Famous Philippians, infamous Corinthians. None of them had any idea what was going to happen to the letters that they received and read out loud in their worship services. None of them knew who the Apostle Paul was. All they knew was who submitted to his authority and listened to his rebukes and considered them precious and who rejected them and considered them anathema because, after all, he wasn't treating them according to what their eminence required. The Apostle Paul was absolutely gaga for God and for the souls of his sheep. And everything else, have you ever watched somebody 
work who every aspect of their work is a function of them wanting you to notice what they're doing. Drives you crazy, right? And then you watch somebody who everything about them is simply to get the work done. They'll get dirty shirts and dirty pants. Their shoes will be muddy and the work's done. Now, who do you love? Do you love the person that's always saying, look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me? Or do you love the person who says, it's done? And the Apostle Paul is never saying, look at me. Or if he is, he's saying, I am the chief of sinners. So apparently there was no cult of Paul that he developed, right? Because if you develop a cult of Paul and you say, I'm the chief of sinners, it doesn't go very well, does it? Does it? You know? And so here he is. He's talked about preaching and the stupidity of preaching. He's talked about the cross and the foolishness of the cross. And now, as another exhibit in this whole line, he now talks about how disgusting the people are. And you say, well, not disgusting. And I say, well, what do you think it means to be despised and are not? It's disgusting. He says to the congregation, if you aren't convinced that the cross is stupidity and foolishness, if you aren't convinced that God's wisdom is foolishness to man, consider yourselves. Look, look around. And he uses demographics, right? He says, okay, check out what's in this sanctuary right now. How many here are intellectuals? How many of you are highly educated? How many of you are esteemed? How many of you have memberships at the Bloomington Country Club? How many of you eat at, what's the name of that uh, thing at the Union? Yeah, the Tudor Room. That's where I was always taken when I was at ECC. Oh, the Tudor Room. <laughs> Got invited to the Tudor Room. You might see Herman Wells there and Adam. <laughs> Serving him, Andy. Those nothings next to Herman Wells. And you know, when I get to heaven, you know who I'm going to brag about knowing? I'm going to brag about knowing Andy Halsey and Adam Spadey. For consider your calling, brethren. And before we get into what they were demographically, let me make a couple notes about the words here because words are important in Scripture because all Scriptures God breathes. That doesn't mean just the concepts. It doesn't mean just the spiritual concepts. But what you want to do with the Bible is you want to take the words and be real finicky about the words. All right? Real finicky about the words. Because all scriptures God breathes. Every single word. Jesus says every jot and tittle. That means every comma, every period. Sort of. Okay, words. And here he says, for consider your calling. Now you might make the mistake of thinking, consider your uh, occupation, consider the um, 
particular job that you do. That's what we mean by calling. And that's not what it means here. Every time in the New Testament that word calling is used, it's pointing to the fact that God chose us and we did not choose him every single time. So consider your calling. In other words, consider who you were and what you are when God drew you to himself and gave you faith. Consider your calling. All right? And then brethren. It calls the women brethren. Because women are represented by Adam. And so constantly in the epistles, it's driven home that your federal head is Adam as a woman. It's not Eve, it's Adam. So consider your calling brethren. And that includes men and women, old and young, whether we're related by blood or not, it includes them all of us under, under brothers, all right? Consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh. Now, what is this word wise? Well, it's the word that we get sophomore from, or sophistry. It's a word that in ancient Greece referred to philosophers, but at this time it referred to the educated. Now, immediately I have trouble translating it to you because what is an education today? When I was in high school, an education was a college degree. It's not anymore. Today, college is remedial work for high school work. All right? Honestly. I read papers from a number of you. <laughs> Trust me. <laughs> you wouldn't have gotten through high school writing the way you write now, and you have a college degree. All right? So what is educated today? Well, it's not a college degree because that's just high school. So maybe it's a master's degree. It's very hard to translate this. But if you read at that time, those who were uneducated were what? They were illiterate. They were not able to read. So what do we do to translate it into North America? Well, it's doubly difficult because what it says is wise according to the flesh. So you think about America today and you think, who wants to be wise? I mean, there's nobody that wants to be wise today. What, what help is being wise? What did it ever get Steve Jobs? You know, what we honor today is efficiency, genius. Nobody honors wise today. Nobody wants a wise Supreme Court justice. What we want is a white, a black, a Hispanic, somebody who's pro-abortion, somebody that's anti, but a wise judge. Who wants wisdom today? And so look at what it says. Consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh. So in that church, there were hardly any who the world looked at and said they're wise, they're educated, they're philosophical, they're nuanced, you know? Nobody respected them for their brains. Nobody respected them because they, had, they were very skilled intellectually. You know, this wasn't any of that in the church, all right? But then go on and it says, not many mighty. This is the word that we get our word dynamite from, all right? Dunamis. So there weren't many that had the ability of making things happen. People who were influential. People that when they went somewhere, everybody wanted to talk to them, 
to meet them, to say that they were at their wedding reception. Okay? Weren't many of those people. Not many wise, according to the flesh, not many mighty, and not many noble. What's noble? Well, nobility is your birth. It's your heritage. It's, it's the people that you can trace your lineage back through. So like you're a daughter of the American Revolution. Or you're, 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 you can go back to the Mayflower. Or um, in Boston, you're a blue blood. All right. And in America today, we despise those people. You know, just because he's part of royalty, when Prince Charles came to Chicago like 20 years ago, the newspapers were just filled with this anti-royalty bile. (laughs) Who does he think he is out on the polo grounds of Oak Brook? (laughs) You know? Oh, we Americans are so democratic. And so when we read that not many of them were noble, it doesn't mean anything to us. We, we punch you in the nose just because you had a famous father. You know, us and the Australians, you know. <laughs> you know, we're kind of the underdog perpetually, even while the whole world apes us. So it's very hard for you to get the feeling for what's going on here because we don't value wisdom. We don't care about it. We just want to know, do you make money? Are you skillful at making money? And there aren't many of us that care much about being mighty unless it's that you're ripped, unless it's that you're a beast. You play for the NFL. You know, uh, maybe some concern and respect for power in America, but not nobility. Now, what do we translate it into? I don't know what to translate it into. Um, But it clearly has to do with mind, strength, and uh, uh, pedigree, uh, bloodline. Those are the three things that it has to do with. And he, he, he says to the congregation, look around, check out who's here, and you see we're the off-scourings of the universe. Nobody's proud to be here. And that's true of us as a church. Who's important here? Now, I'm not speaking spiritually. I'm speaking fleshly. Who is important here? It's really a precious group. Because God in his kindness from the beginning disciplined us to lay aside these things. And now God has caused people to come into the church. And we have a few people who have finally lived long enough to be important. (laughs) Okay? Um, But those people don't throw their weight around here. They just don't do it. And so, in a real sense, the problem with you as a church is not that you want somebody who has hairspray and a degree and a British accent as a pastor. The problem with you is that you kind of feel defeatist about not having a man like that. I mean, the problem with you is you don't ever want to invite anybody to hear Tim Bailey preach. 
You know, it's kind of like taking somebody out to smell your outhouse. (laughs) Not high on the level of goals and objectives when we have somebody we want to influence. I think I'll bring him to hear Tim Bailey preach. Oh, I just hope he doesn't use an illustration about outhouse smell. But the Spirit of God is in this place. And the Spirit of God has brought peace to us and unity. And a lot of that peace and unity is a function of the absence of the pursuit of earthly wisdom, earthly power, earthly status, earthly education. As a matter of fact, what's really interesting about this church is how often our elders and pastors and Titus II women have conflict with parents because the minute their children come under the preaching of the word, you know what happens. All of a sudden, those kids are turned by the Holy Spirit. Those kids are turned so that no longer is it their life's goal to be wise according to the world, the flesh. No longer is it their goal to have authority and power according to the world. No longer is it their goal to have what? Status, to have riches, to have influence. All of a sudden, what they want to be, permit me to make the application, what they want to be is a woman. And all these Christian parents just have hissy fits that this is a church that honors femininity. Which is weakness. Because the Bible says the weaker vessel. And so we're a church that teaches men that they should defend and protect the weaker vessel and women that they should take pride in being the weaker vessel. And all of a sudden, all those Christian parents that raised their children in churches that were proud are saying, what happened to my daughter? What happened to my son? What happened to them? I was sending them off to the pagans to get an education and get money. And then that church got a hold of them. And now they've been turned by the Holy Spirit. But of course, they never say that. What they say is they've been turned by Stephen Baker and by Mary Lee Bailey and by Dave Carell and by Barbara Lear. And they focus their hatred and anger on the godly nothings of this church who have seduced their children to nothingness also. And of course, their children are unbelievably happy. I I kid you not, I've watched it for 18 years now. Their children all of a sudden have the freedom to be who God put in their hearts they should be. And their parents hate it, just hate it. Because no longer is this person, that person, and the other person, no longer are they going in a different direction. And so, brothers and sisters, ask yourself the question whether when Paul spoke about not being wise according to the flesh, not mighty, not noble, but being foolish, being weak, 
being base, being despised, to sum up being not, not. All right. Ask yourself whether that was true of the church at that time, but it's not true of the church here today. All right, ask yourself that question. Is this just something that was true of the early church because right from the be- right out of the gate they needed to be disciplined? Or is this something that God has always chosen to do? To do? It's interesting. One of the commentaries I was reading uh, talks about this being true of the early church, but within about 50 years they say it was no longer true. It was just a temporary discipline that the people who were Christians were nothings. Is that true? Well, look at what it says. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despise God has chosen, the things that are not. Why? So that he may nullify the things that are. In other words, do you recognize in the text that it says two things about God concerning his choice? Number one, that he wants to shame the wise, the powerful, the rich, and the influential, and of noble birth. And also that he wants to nullify the rich, the powerful, the famous, the educated. It says God chooses us so that we are to the shame of the people that the world respects and emulates and so that the world will be nullified by us. Now, do you feel that your life is a shame to the influential who snub you? Do you see yourself as nullifying Bobby Knight? Or Kenneth Gross-Lewis. You know, when Kenneth Gross-Lewis comes in your presence, do you think he's ashamed of who he is? Do you think he feels nullified by you? <laughs> the dean of the law school. You know, Drew Howe comes in, and, and all of a sudden everybody blushes. And yet what God says is, in his word, he says that he has chosen you, you know accounts, so that you will show the world what God himself honors. I wonder whether it's making sense now and whether we see the completely logical result of God being jealous for his own glory is that he will not, he absolutely will not choose those who are already glorious in the eyes of the world. God will not choose those who are already glorious in the eyes of the world. He will not choose those who are strong, those who have good birth, those who are highly educated. Now, it doesn't mean there are none of them. He says not many. Right? It would be perverse if we use this text to glory in being stupid. The whole point is God chose stupid people. So you don't start glorying in being stupid. You don't start glorying in, 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 in being unnoble of birth. You don't start glorying in being weak, a wuss. But God working through you shows that even Israel... 
even the Jews. Do you remember? Now, when you come into the promised land and everything's going well and you're harvesting crops that you didn't plant, fruit trees, don't go making the mistake that look at what we have earned. Look at our strength. Look at our power. Remember, God chose you because you're nothing. That's the reason God chose you as Jews. You remember that. And the same thing is true of the church. This is no temporary thing. Because if God had chosen us because of our wisdom and our education and our status and our strength, then we could point to such men and thank them for building his church, thank them for spreading his truth. We could thank them for encouraging other men and women who are wise and well-bred or well-born, pedigreed, influential, highly respected, well-nuanced, well-educated, who are management, who are white-collar, who are wealthy, who are Monroe, and certainly not Clay County, who live on the east side of Bloomington, who are tenured professors, who are NCAA soccer champs, men like Jerry Yagley and Bobby Knight and Tom Crean and Ken Gross-Lewis and Herman Wells, women like Nancy Pelosi and Sharon Bream and Pat Summit and Oprah Winfrey. We could point to them and say, look at how they built the church. One of the things, well, not just one, there are a couple of things that um, caused me no end of gnashing my teeth. And one of the things is that from the time I was a little child, I have been around evangelical leaders muckety-mucks, who think that the way that God builds his church is to get the cheerleaders and the good jocks, the good athletes, the good lawyers, the leaders, the presidents of the class, if we can just have an evangelical ministry that is able to convert these men and women, then the church will grow exponentially. And so you will actually hear many of these evangelical leaders talking and describing and teaching people how to go after the leaders. And of course, what do they mean by the leaders? What they mean is the exact opposite of what God has shown all through history that he does. What they mean is the people with status, the people with power, the people who are well-educated, the people who have tenure. If we can just through Veritas form at Harvard bring in our our champion intellectuals. Then we'll be something. And we can publish their lectures and show them whooping up on angst-ridden, tiny, thin atheists who just recently reached puberty. And we'll be something. Because after all, who wants to be our not? And it's never been God's habit. It's never been his method. God does not need the wealthy. That same woman, Rita Cuffey, we were trying to, my former church was trying to build a college ministry, and so they asked people to give money for the college ministry because it's always the, the off-scouring of ministries. It doesn't, it doesn't produce, and so the people in local churches never give money for that. And so they thought, well, if people are willing to support a college minister, we'll have one, but he's not going to be in the budget. 
And so Rita decided that she wanted to support it, but her support was, I think, something like a dollar a week because she was very poor. And then somebody in the church, an officer, came to her and told her they did not want her to give her dollar a week because it was more of a pain to keep track of than it amounted to any value. And you know something? Do you know that when the Bible tells us that the widow's might is more than all the money that the rich people put in, do you realize that God isn't speaking metaphorically? God is being a perfect mathematician, a perfect accountant, a perfect MBA when he says that. Because that dollar a week from Rita funds more, accomplishes more, is blessed by God more than all the wealth of all the rich people of the world. You know something? Africa does not need North American whites. The best thing that could happen to Africa is for not one more white North American to go there, either virtually through the TBN broadcast system or physically. What Africa needs is the Spirit of God that restores the rule of law, that restores concepts of justice and mercy and fidelity to your wife. And do you think Americans are going to take that? You think that's what we're exporting to Africa? No, we're telling Africans that if they'll just get on board with TBN, then they can realize that what Christian faith is, is a way of actually being rich and influential. That's what we export to Africa. And then other missionaries go and they bring feminism. And they bring (laughs) microfinance. Which 95% of it goes to women. And nobody is calling men in Africa to be leaders, to be lovers of their wives, to be faithful and sexually pure. Nobody does that in Africa. Because Christianity has become a method of getting rich. And that's what we export. That's what the entire evangelical world does today is it denies the plain meaning of Scripture. It says, if we can just get white North Americans into Africa, well, Africans have a tendency to respect white North Americans. And so white North Americans, when they come to Africa, well, it's the best of both worlds. You know, you have God's truth combined with man's power and education and efficiency. And man, what a powerful pair that is. (laughs) You guys, you should be laughing. (laughs) It's like ludicrous. It's absolutely ludicrous. Come on, laugh. I mean, where did that come from? Where did it come from? It comes from the evil one. The evil one hates life, hates wisdom, hates the cross, hates righteousness and loves evil. And so the evil one is very, very happy to promote the big lie, which is that to be alive and to be a Christian is the same thing. 
And there's certainly no obstacle if you're highly educated and if you're rich and if you have a lot of power and a lot of charisma. In fact, that's the best of both worlds. And that's a lie of Satan. If I present God's word in such a way that you leave here thinking, he's so erudite. He's so well-spoken. If you have elders, you end up leaving a meeting with them. And instead of seeing your sin more clearly and God's faithfulness more clearly, you're thinking about the elder and how wonderful it is that you have a dentist ministering to you. Or the man that was the principal cataloger of classical vinyl. You know, that's what I always come out of elders meetings thinking. You know, I just can't believe I'm the moderator of an elders board that has the principal cataloger and pricer of vinyl. <laughs> I mean, it's an accident. Not many of you are vinyl collectors and pricers. Not many of you are dentists. Not many of you are well-educated. And if you are, you probably view it to your detriment rather than to your glory. Because what you want to be is you want to be low and humble under the cross of Jesus Christ. There is absolutely no place for pride under the cross of Jesus Christ. And if you come under the cross, God will whoop you because he loves you. Whatever you thought you brought that he could use, whether it's violin, your voice, your intellectual ability, your riches, whatever it is, God, he, if he loves you, he's going to destroy it. Your pedigree, who your parents are. Brothers and sisters, it does, doesn't matter. Or another way of saying it is, it matters and it will die. Oh, I was, I was noble of birth. My father was famous. And then what did I do? What did I do? I trampled on it. I gave myself to rebellion, to every wickedness. And so in Wheaton, do you think I have a good reputation? That's the man that got Ken Taylor's daughter pregnant. That's my reputation. But God, in his mercy, after I'd completely died, and my father had completely died, and my mother had completely died, and my father-in-law had completely died, and my mother-in-law had completely died, Then, 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 God called us to himself. Then. <laughs> and as, uh, what's his face would say? Um, what's that guy's name? Roger Frost. Robert Frost. That's made all the difference. So listen, brothers and sisters, glory in the things that cause God to be able to glory himself through you. If you're the kind of person that everybody looks down on and nobody considers, that's your glory in the church. That's your glory. Because then if anything happens, it's good. It's God. It's not you. Okay? 
Now, one last thing. What about those of you who... Well, let me, let me read you something. The early church father Origen quotes the second century Greek philosopher Celsus. Now, you won't be surprised to know that a Greek philosopher in the second century hated Christianity. All right? And Origen's trying to defend Christianity. And to do that, he's quoting Celsus, this philosopher, this Greek philosopher. And he writes this. The Christians' injunctions are like this. In other words, what Christians tell you to do, this is what, this is what they say to do. Let no one educated, no one wise, no one sensible draw near. For these abilities are thought by us to be evils. But as for anyone ignorant, anyone stupid, anyone uneducated, anyone who is a child, let him come boldly. By the fact that they themselves admit that these people are worthy of their God, they show that they want and are able to convince only the foolish, dishonorable and stupid, and only slaves, women, and little children. (laughs) And to him... End of argument. Now, is that who we are today? Do we particularly go for the women? Yeah, to turn them into men. That's what we do today. Do we particularly go for children? Yes, to abort them. And to put them in daycare while we care for them. Is this the church today? You know, what we need today is we need to go back to the early church and begin to live counterculturally instead of trying to fit in. We need to be resigned to being the off-scouring of the earth, to being our knots. <laughs> Did I tell you? I forget whether it was the first service of this. Do you know what that expression was used in the early church time in Greek to say? That was the expression that was used to refer to the slaves. The slaves are not. Why were the slaves are not? The slaves are not because their master was everything, and they were not. Isn't that fascinating? So when it says we are not, what it means is God is our master. He's bought us with the price. He is our redemption. He is our sanctification. He is our righteousness. And now we are not... And he is. Those of you who look at this and say, to hell with it. You've never spoken more truthfully. Because those who despise God's glory and want to retain it for themselves will be in hell throughout eternity. Because God is jealous for his glory. And those who come to the cross, stupid, stupid weakness, naked Savior, dying. Those who come to the church, the poor, the uneducated, the wusses. Those who come to God with nothing in their hands are the only ones that God says, I'll take him. As a matter of fact, I'm drawing him. I have chosen him. I'm calling him. And you won't be able not to come. And that's the most that true Christians can ever brag. We can't even say, I chose him. All we can say is, he chose me. 
And then guess what? You don't fight with each other. <laughs> what are you going to fight over? <laughs> you know, me and my dignity. You and yours. It's a joke. You don't have any. <laughs> and that's why this church is at peace. <laughs>